Heavenly Father, in your presence we bow and ask that you and your word would reign supreme in our moment of study, in our time of reflection, in a personal transformation. Lord Corb has reminded us that there is an aspect of our life that we don't like to acknowledge, and that is we are broken people. And even after we come to you in faith and all of our sins are forgiven, we're far from perfect. And if there is to be any community where there is joy, if there is to be any union where there is partnership, then we need to learn to be broken together. So Father, I pray, bring your gracious healing to our hearts and cause us to see once again that Jesus Christ is all we need. We pray in your name and God's people said, amen, amen. I think it was John O'Sullivan who is at least attributed with coining the phrase, manifest destiny. It was a phrase that described the prevalent view in 19th century America especially about America's expansion westward. That is, America not only had the privilege and opportunity as well as the necessity to expand because of all the immigrants coming into our country, there was a necessity to increase from coast to coast and promote and spread our institutions and, and uh, develop our civilization everywhere across the continent. Unfortunately, that evolved some atrocities dealing with Native Americans and wars like with Mexico, but territories were to be won, people thought. The Oregon Territory, California, and the Southwest, and so they pushed forward. Sullivan even added a divine perspective to it when he said, our manifest destiny is to overspread the continent allotted to us by providence. So this is not just something we've come up with. This is God blowing the wind of our sails. And forward we go. I don't know if it's from that particular time that we included in our normal language this phrase, I have a date with destiny. It's the idea that, again, there is something inevitable that is to take place. It's like I've been made for this momentous event that's going to take place in my, my life, and I'm aimed for it. It's interesting, just a brief search on the Internet will show that this phrase has now been monopolized almost by the modern motivational guru Tony Robbins, who in his inspirational talks has a six-week seminar entitled Your Date with Destiny. And he says, not only will you discover who you are, but you will create the life-changing experience that you long for. You will create it. Interesting, the first manifest destiny was God laying down before us something that we had to accomplish, that we were created for, and now it's you create your date of destiny. Well, I say all of that to say that as I read through the gospel according to Mark, and especially as we get into the, the middle part of the book, we've arrived there at the transfiguration of Christ, and, 
Now from this point, he's going toward Jerusalem. And one of the old translations says he set his face like a flint. (laughs) Why? He had a date with destiny. If that phrase could be used of any person, it was used of Christ, who came into this world to die. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Now it is approaching. It's his date with destiny. Open your scriptures to Matthew's gospel, chapter 10. Excuse me, Mark's gospel, chapter 10. We've been studying through the gospel according to Mark. And we now come to the 10th chapter. And we read in verse 1 that Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. In that brief little phrase, Mark is summarizing a lot that's happening. And this map gives us a little bit of an idea of what's been going on. That place referred to in verse 1 is Caesarea Philippi in the very northern part of the land of Israel. This is where I believe the transfiguration of Christ actually took place on the highest mountain in the land, Mount Hermon. Then they left that place and traveled down to Capernaum, the adopted hometown of Jesus on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he talked to his disciples. That's where they'd been arguing on the road about who is the greatest, and he settled that with the fact that discipleship is all about servanthood. The greatest among you? is servant of all. It's not the one who has the most servants. It's the one who is the greatest servant. And then they left the uh, place of Capernaum and went through the region of Judea and and into the region of Judea. Actually, before they did that, they had to pass through Samaria. And that's the part that Mark just kind of glosses over. Not that it's not important, but Mark has a purpose. And you get the other... uh, accounts in the gospel writers of Matthew and John and Luke who describe what took place in the land of Samaria during that time. But then Judea is the southern part, and Jesus continued down to the south and across the Jordan to the land of Perea, the Transjordan, as it's called. And here Jesus is going to do some amazing teaching on his way back across the Jordan, westward, and finally to the cross in the city of Jerusalem. He's on the road of suffering. This is the real Dia Della Rosa. This is the Lord going to the place where he is going to give up his life. He's led by love. He's got a date with destiny. And the scripture tells us that he is teaching the crowds of people who are following him. A lot of crowds following him because this is the festival time. So this is a popular journey road. This is a popular path to the city. And of course his popularity had grown to such an extent that people everywhere knew about him and wanted to hear from him. So as was his custom, he taught them. Now we don't know what the subject was uh, of his teaching was at this particular time. You can go through the Uh, gospel writers and and take a guess but maybe he mentioned something about marriage or maybe that was just simply the hot topic of the day and indeed it was because we read in verse 2 that some Pharisees came and tested him by asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
And Matthew adds that the question literally came like this. Is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason he chooses? A test. The word that is mentioned in verse 2 is actually mentioned four different times in Mark's gospel. And the first time is Mark chapter 1 when it tells us that Jesus was taken into the wilderness and there he was tempted by the devil. So we're talking about a diabolical test. And the other three times it's mentioned in Mark here, uh, well, it's, there's chapter 8 and then chapter 10, and then uh, once again later on in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, it's always the Pharisees testing, probing, trying to trap him in his words, trying to bring him out in an apparent contradiction, which is what the media loves to do with our leaders. It's not just unveiling what they really believe. There's an animosity often to the questions, and there is an ulterior motive and an agenda, and so there was with the Pharisees. And Mark is connecting the question of the Pharisees with the question of the devil because he wants everyone to see that this is coming from the same source. Diabolical. By the way, both the Pharisees and the devil in testing Jesus mishandled Scripture, which is one of Satan's best tools. So the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, is actually a question that is based on an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy. And so Jesus, in his response to them, takes them back to the Scriptures. Verse 3, what did Moses command you? It's a great way to uh, be involved in a debate is to allow your opponent to reveal themselves. And the best way to do that is often with questions, and Jesus was a master at that. By the way, one of the tests, I'm sure, in the mind of the Pharisee was to have Jesus answer uh, the question on an issue that had no safe answer. Whatever he said would be criticized. And it's also interesting to note that the district that they were in, in Perea, was ruled by Herod Antipas, who was famous at that time for divorcing his wife and marrying his brother's wife. And when John the Baptist said, hey, this isn't kosher, he lost his head. So the Pharisees not only want to embroil Jesus in controversy and get him in between a rock and a hard place where he'll contradict, maybe he's something he said before, or he'll cast his lot in with John the Baptist and maybe experience the same consequence. They don't care how Jesus is killed. They just want him gone. And so that's what's behind this test question. But Jesus takes them back to Scripture. And he says, what did Moses command? Verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Again, that's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is the only portion of Scripture in the Old Testament that really deals with marriage and divorce to this extent. And verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent in her, 
He is to write her a certificate of divorce. He is to give it to her and send her from his house. (laughs) But you see, they're mishandling the scripture. What was their response? Moses permitted us to do pretty much anything we wanted. The whole debate, the crux of the debate, was pivoting on this phrase, what is indecent? What are the legitimate grounds for divorce? It's not that there wasn't any divorce in that day, but what is legitimate? What is appropriate? Moses says, if your wife displeases you, and she is found to be indecent. The ideal of a Jewish marriage was high. The practice common among the people was extremely low. And it sounds like our day. While many in a survey might speak of how important marriage is, the practice of marriage and divorce in our land is atrocious. Now, it may be true that it's not 50% of all marriages end in divorce. You've heard that statistic over and over again, and that's being questioned. It may not be true. And that may not be true because more people are just living together without getting married. But the point is, however you cut it, marriage is in trouble today. And it's in trouble today because people are asking the question, how can I easily get out? Do I have to stay in? And how can I expedite the exodus of this unbearable union. It's interesting that the Jews, in their own writings, would say that God is long-suffering and he'll endure any sin except the sin of infidelity. And when divorce takes place, even the altar itself weeps with tears and the glory of God departs. So what is this uncleanness? Well, Rabbi uh, Shammai, basically all of the Jews fell into two camps. Rabbi Shammai was of the more conservative Orthodox group. They were a little stricter, and they said that there is only one reason, and that is if there is infidelity. Your wife might be like a Jezebel and as stubborn as a mule, but that doesn't make any difference. You cannot divorce her unless there's infidelity. By the way, among the Jews, the the women were property, and only the men had the right to divorce. And so that's why at this juncture, uh, the, the portion in Deuteronomy is focusing on the man. So that's the strict school. However, the dominant view followed Rabbi Hillel, who said basically you could divorce your wife for any reason. Indecent was anything you deemed indecent if she displeased you. Here's some of the reasons that they actually wrote down. If she's talking to a strange man without your position, or without your permission. If she's spinning in the streets, I guess that means dancing. If she's a brawler, which means her voice is so loud she can be heard next door. If she speaks disrespectfully about the husband's relationships, his family. In other words, no mother-in-law jokes anymore. If she spoils your food, (laughs) get rid of her. In fact, Rabbi 
Uh, one of the rabbis, Rabbi Akaba, actually said, if a man finds another woman fairer than his wife, he may divorce his wife. Well, I tell you, if you get to that place, you've got utter, utter chaos, and we're just about there, right? Very few people take their wedding vows seriously, and it's even true among believers. So that's the dominant view. Any answer Jesus gives is probably going to get him into hot water. They're hoping he says something that infuriates Herod, and maybe he'll swoop down and just kill Jesus. But Jesus goes back to the Word. I love that. To the controversy swirling around him of the day, he explains God's intention by solid counsel from the Word of God. And my friend, this is exactly what you and I need today. Whether the issue is divorce or any other controversy we face, any other confusion among our community and culture, the answer is to be found in the living Word of God. And if the Word of God is not true, if the Word of God is not His Word breathed out to us, a trustworthy, reliable guide and counsel, then, my friend, you have nothing. Take the word of God out, and there is no objective standard at all. And that's exactly what our society is trying to do. So that whatever today might be in vogue, tomorrow will be out of step. What may be permissible today might be criminal tomorrow. Because our community and our world is changing with the winds and waves that sweep across. And the God of this world, the devil, is smiling. So Jesus says, let's get back to the word. Now notice verse 5. Yeah, Moses wrote a command, but it's not the command to divorce. You're mishandling the word. He's not telling people, I command you to divorce. He's saying, if you do get a divorce, I command you to write a certificate. And Jesus now uncovers the motive, which we rarely see. But in verse 5, he says, It's because your hearts are hard that Moses wrote down this law. What is hardness of heart? That's the opposite of softness of heart, right? A hard heart cannot be molded, not malleable. It's like clay that the potter sits down to work with and put as much water as he will. The clay is just already hardened and he's got to throw it to the side. Cannot put an impression on it. Cannot influence it. Cannot reshape it. But a soft heart is one that takes the impressions and the truth and the molding of the potter and is shaped into something far different. Your hearts were hard, and that's why he wrote you this law. The law was rather simple. It was a simple bill of divorce. 
and it was written to protect the wife because what was happening is that men were divorcing their, uh, their wives for any reason, and then the wife lived in shame and could not even produce a, a, a living and was in horrible straits. And so from a very practical sense, just to establish community, the command was, if you do divorce your wife, he's not saying it's right, but if you do, make sure you give her a bill of divorce that says she is fully uh, freed from the covenant that she had with you and she is free to marry another. That is the command. The intent is to protect the wife, protect the wife, to create legal, a legal safe environment for women and not to establish easy excuses for men. Oh, and yet we're so good at twisting the scriptures to create the opportunity so that we might live our lives just exactly as we please. In New Testament times, this bill of divorce had become so complex that it took a skilled rabbi to write it up, and then it had to be approved by the council before it went forward. And they'd missed the purpose of it all. So what does Jesus do? He says, let's go back to the word. Let's go back to the original purpose. Let's go back to creation and Genesis 1 and 2. Because in beginning in verse 6, after establishing the reason why divorce is taking place because of sin, he says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He said in Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He went back to the initial law of marriage. He went past Moses. Remember, the law was given because of sin. The creatorial purpose, which someone called the constitution of the universe. I like that phrase. The constitution of the universe is far different from the legal schemes of man. And so he pointed them back to the original design. From the beginning, it was not so. And what do we learn from the beginning? We learn that God created and designed marriage that three important component parts should be evident. The first is diversity. It says that God created male and female. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, that's pretty apparent, right? And this speaks of diversity. There is diversity biologically, I would say there is diversity in makeup, in the whole realm of psyche. But there is not diversity or a lack of equality in the realm of spirituality. There is difference with equality. Why? Because man and woman were made in the imago Dei, the image of God, and there is no difference there whatsoever. And so they're put on the same plane and on the same level, but there is amazing diversity that is God-designed. And our world desires to wipe it away. Please understand that God doesn't give his rules and instructions to restrict your happiness. 
He wants you to know the path to happiness. He's the one who created everything, and he knows the way that it works best. And he created man and woman to be different. And marriage, from its constitution of the universe, from its original intent, is man and woman. One man, one woman, coming together. And that has never changed. The very fact that Jesus goes back to the original shows that this is a creatorial purpose that transcends any fluctuation in law. Ceremonial law was given to the Jews that we're not under under the new covenant today. But there are some laws that transcend time. And this is one of them. God's creatorial purpose is that man and woman would come together. Diversity. Secondly, there is unity. Man will leave his father and mother, the leaving and the cleaving as we talk about, and the man will join his wife, and the wife will join her husband, and they form a one-flesh relationship that indeed is expressed in the physical union and the offspring that comes from that union, as in God's creatorial purpose, there is to be both enjoyment and procreation from this union. But it is a coming together uniquely, intensely, intimately that makes unity out of diversity. The two become one. That's not true of you and your kids or you and your parents, but it's true of you and your spouse. That was God's intent design and intent and it's perfect my friend it's beautiful god didn't create us to make life miserable he didn't make all of mankind and say now how can i make them really sweat it for the rest of their lives no god created us and his design was to bless us but we sinned we introduced a sin culture to this world and that's what makes everything miserable so there's beautiful unity in the marriage relationship by God's design. And then there is to be longevity, verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It is to last for life. And, and the, the community that is created and the wonderful continuance of that relationship is such a blessing because it grows deeper and better as people grow closer to the Lord. And they, that's God's intent. But because of the hardness of your heart, because of sin, we've got a divorce situation, situation in our world that is a tragedy. Divorce is always a tragedy. Now, the Bible makes it clear that sometimes it is okay to get a divorce. In fact, if you put... If you read Matthew 19, which is the parallel passage to Mark 10, Jesus said, except for fornication, or the, the Greek word is pornea, except for sexual sin, you shouldn't divorce. But when that happens, the marriage may be broken. It doesn't have to be broken, but the covenant has been broken. And among the Jews, it was clear that immorality dissolved the bond. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15, where he talks about abandonment. 
He's talking about a believer and an unbeliever being in a marriage, and he says to the believer, stay with it if they'll stay with you. But if they leave, implied you've tried to keep it together over a period of time and it just wouldn't work, they leave, they abandon you, let them go, you're no longer bound to the marriage contract. They've broken it. And so the Bible establishes at least these two clear reasons of immorality and abandonment, of legitimate reasons for someone ultimately to get a divorce. And the very next phrase is interesting, because we are called to live in peace. In other words, there's a time when you simply have to acknowledge that sin has broken a situation to the place where the only way to pursue peace is to acknowledge what has already happened. That's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus talked about when he ended chapter 9 in Mark. I'm calling you to be at peace with one another. We're talking about relationships and living in community. And it's not just disciple with disciple. It's husband with wife. God established marriage, and he has the right to make the rules. But here's my take on it. I don't think they were so concerned about marriage. Oh, there was some interest there. There was some debate, and they wanted to trap Jesus in his words. But the real concern was this. The underlying question of it all was this. Can I do whatever I want? And that is the focus of modern man. That is inbred in the American psyche. We're Americans, and no one's going to tell us what to do. Really? What if there were a creator who made you? Could he, perchance, direct you? Ah, that is the problem. We don't want to acknowledge a creator, and we do everything we can with feverish energy to try to eliminate his existence. But if there's one thing the Bible teaches and teaches clearly, it's this. God made you, and he owns you, and he has a right to direct you and control you. And that if you really want to enjoy life, you've got to enjoy it, following his direction. Or to put it this way, life is designed by our creator and is fully enjoyed only when we embrace his instruction precious word of God. So to the widespread tension of the hour, Jesus speaks truth. To the abundant confusion, Jesus speaks with clarity. Let's get back to the basics. This is what God said. Marriage is a gift created by God for the welfare and happiness of mankind, not to restrict your joy, but to enhance it. Designed by him, he knows how it works. And yeah, if your heart is hardened to Almighty God, it's not surprising that you find his ways unpleasant. And I don't mean to be harsh to anyone who's been the victim of divorce, because there's a lot of victims out there. The reality is we're all broken people, and almost any marriage could end in divorce we live in a broken world and we've got to learn how to be broken together as Corb sang a moment ago. We need grace. It's a miracle if any marriage lasts. 
And the neat thing about God and mercy is that if there is brokenness, he loves to restore it. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God has not changed his view on divorce. He still hates it. Sin is entered into our world, and because of that, divorce will happen. And Jesus even acknowledges that at times, it's the only way to respond to such a broken situation. But whatever the situation, God can give healing and grace and mercy. And the best way to live is to follow the rules of the Creator. This was true in Russia years ago, and I'm afraid it might be true again maybe very soon, because a new law has been passed in that land that you cannot have freedom of religion. When the wall came down, there was a new freedom. I had a chance to minister in Russia, and the people were so excited, but they were concerned. They were, they were afraid that American Christianity would take over in Russia. That's what they said to me. I was an American. I was offended. Not really. I was rebuked. Yeah, you're right. I don't think I want American Christianity to take over in Russia. And some of that attitude has. But years ago, when the law was you couldn't worship with freedom, Russian believers, in the middle of the night, would go out into the woods and worship. And sometimes they only had one Bible, and sometimes they would rip it page by page and share the Bible with different members of their congregation who would have it for a week, a page of the Scripture for a week, and they would read it and memorize it or copy it and then come back to the meeting and exchange pages. Why do you do this, someone once asked? Why do you risk your life? And their answer was quite simple. Jesus has saved my soul. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's following Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to get our perspective back on your word and to understand that truth your truth is always true. And that we must not somehow be infected by an attitude that comes from this world that says there is no creator God. and He doesn't care how you live. And the vows you made can easily be dismissed. Lord, may our core philosophy be the creator's philosophy. And may we live it with blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.